Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21? Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs him, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the coat, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind in order that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument to convey everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that this will be a time of great honor to our Lord Jesus, edifying all your people 
and bringing glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This Palm Sunday is about the importance of praise, that is, praising God. And I would give as a sermon title of this sermon, Praising God for the Wrong Reason. What happens if you praise God for the wrong reason? What happens if you don't? I have to tell you that I find Palm Sunday a mystery. The reason for it, the original occasion, as uh, most of you will know, I was minister of Westminster Chapel across town here for 25 years. That means I preached 25 years on, uh, that is 25 times on Palm Sunday. So I've got 25 different sermons on Palm Sunday. The funny thing is, every year when I would preach on this subject, I would hope to understand Palm Sunday. I remember years ago when I preached through the Gospel of John, or, or part of it, and one of the commentators made the uh, observation that after he had completely gone through the Gospel of John and exegeted it and wrote a commentary, that he still didn't understand the Gospel of John. I feel that way about Palm Sunday. I don't quite get it. It's a mystery to me. And the reason is that this is an event that really came to nothing. And yet it gets so much attention. I think one of the reasons, and this is what I shall be talking about today for Palm Sunday, is to show how important praising God is. Do you have any idea what praising God does for God? Not to mention what it will do for you. So you're in a win-win situation if you understand the importance of praise to the Lord and if you do it. Let me put it this way. Whenever you're praising the Lord, you are doing something right. If you're worried what to do, you think you're doing nothing, what is this moment for? Praise the Lord. You'll make it right. You'll put it right because you can't do it wrong. Praising God, it is impossible to do it wrong. God accepts the praise. Now, here's the thing. This interesting but mysterious day is recorded in all four Gospels, plus being prophesied in the Old Testament. That must make it important. For example, uh, Jesus praying in Gethsemane. You've got it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, but you don't have it in John. Or the words of Jesus, why have you forsaken me? You've got it in Mark and Matthew, but not in Luke or John. Or the reference to darkness on Good Friday. You've got it in Mark, Matthew, Luke, but not John. But when it comes to Palm Sunday, it is in all four of the Gospels. And as I say, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, 
daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. And so there it is. Pretty strong hint that Palm Sunday must be very important. And yet, as I said, it comes to nothing. Here's the thing. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna. Do you know what the word Hosanna means? Salvation, or he saves. And that's what they're shouting, salvation. But their idea of salvation and what we would have today looking into this would not be the same. We understand salvation because the whole thing is behind us. We know what was going on at the time when they shouted, Hosanna, he saves. They only had one thing in mind, and that is that this Jesus would be Israel's king. He would overthrow Rome. That to them was salvation. It was salvation for the nation of Israel. That is the only way they could conceive of this word, Hosanna, applying to Jesus. And then a few days later, the following Friday, he would end up on a cross. Nobody except Jesus himself anticipated this moment. Well, the question is, why is Palm Sunday so important? Why is it prophesied? Why in all four Gospels? Well, for one thing, it is the unfolding of God's prophecy. Remember this. God knows the future as perfectly as he knows the past. And whenever he wants to bring something that's in the future to a prophet of God to forecast it, he could pick any event. He knows the future of every person here. He knows where you will be tomorrow afternoon, three years from now, at four o'clock on that day. He knows your future perfectly. And so there are certain things that God chose to bring forward. And it's in the Old Testament. And this is one of those. This is how important Palm Sunday is. In fact, you have the words from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying that on Palm Sunday. But you might like to know the context of that verse. It's Psalm 118 starting at verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were shouting on Palm Sunday. Now, John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16, says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, while it was going on, 
No one said to each other, ah, this is prophecy being fulfilled. No one said, ah, this is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6. No, it didn't cross their minds. They realized later what had been written about him and what had been done to him. And so the event was important enough that it was prophesied long before it happened. Now, this fascinates me. How interesting that God would bother to prophesy something that, in a sense, came to nothing. Why? It is to let us see that what happened on Palm Sunday was part of God's plan, even though it fell short of the people's expectations. Let me personalize this in your direction. Suppose at this moment, things are going for you very well. The wind is at your back. Things are happening. You're on a roll. You're excited. You just had a letter from home. You just had an answer to prayer. You got the job. You got the invitation. Things are going so well. And you say, this is great. This is good. And what if, before the week is over, things go sour? Relationships turn sour. Something is not on your schedule. Well, just remember that Palm Sunday was important to God, and what happened at the end of the week was important to God, so that if things do not turn out right, it's all right, because God is in the way you feel now, and He is in the way it could turn out. Hopefully, it will turn out beautifully and brilliantly for you. But as for this occasion... It didn't turn out what they thought would happen. This brings me back to a vision I had in 1956. That's before most of you were born. Really makes me feel old. <laughs> I'll be 80 in July, which is a reminder, you know, God didn't use Moses until he was 80, so I can hardly wait. I've got a bright future. I want you to know that. But in 1956, during that year, for, for reasons I can't explain, I had several visions, maybe 10 or 12 visions. You didn't look for them. You didn't seek them. You didn't know they were going to happen. I, I could be walking or driving or on my knees, and there would come before me something. It was clear. It was, it was, it was a vision. And... I remember one vision in particular. I saw a church. Windows were on the right. No windows on the left. All the seats were theater-like seats. And an aisle in the middle. And in the vision, my father, my dad, is walking down the aisle and is wearing a green suit. Mint green. Now, that color green is a little brighter than what my dad wore. Uh, that's closer to it. Your color there. Yeah, my dad had a suit that color. Uh, not a suit that an English gentleman would wear, but uh, being American, uh, he could do that. <laughs> well, 
Six years later, in 1962, I'm invited to preach in this church in Carlisle, Ohio. And they're looking for a pastor. And they want me to preach for them. Well, the first thing I notice when I walk inside the church is there are theater-like seats, an aisle in the middle, windows here, no windows there. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is going to be the fulfillment of that vision. Well, it turned out the church gave us a unanimous call, and Louise and I moved to Carlisle, Ohio. That's a little town south of Dayton, north of Cincinnati, a wide place in the road. You only go there on purpose. <laughs> Never heard of the place, but there we're going to live now. And a few weeks after I become their minister, my dad phones me and says, we're coming to hear you preach Sunday. I said, okay, good. I said to Louise, he's going to be wearing a mint green color suit. And sure enough, as soon as he got in the house, he handed me this. He says, where can I hang this suit? And I looked at Louise. I said, see there? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the next day, Sunday, I know at some point that vision will be fulfilled. It wasn't during the service or before, but after the service was over, he was in the back of the church, and here I see him walking down the aisle, comes to the front and turns this way, and then just goes back, just as the vision. That was it. I thought, well, what is the meaning? I might have thought this must mean that I'm going to have the greatest ministry of my life in Carlisle, Ohio. This is what I have been waiting for. This is the reason I have been born, is for this church. What must be on God's mind that he would give me a vision six years ago, literally fulfilled before my eyes. You want to know something? It was the worst era of my life. <laughs> Weeks after my dad left, different ones began to fall out with what I was preaching. A year later, they got up a petition and got all the people to sign to throw me out of the church. They would have done it at one vote short so I could stay, but we left. It was a disaster. It was horrible. And the trauma of those 18 months, I have never got over. But why the vision? I think I know. It was God's way of saying, you are in his will. He wants you to know that he is behind your being here and everything that's going on is going according to plan. And I want to say to all in this place, maybe this is not a fulfillment of a vision, but equally, God knew you would be here. He knew you'd be here at this very moment, and there is a purpose in your being here. It is not an accident that you're here. And I want you to understand, as best as I can get over, the purpose. And that's my second point. Point number one, this Palm Sunday is an unfolding of prophecy. Second, it is the unfolding of God's purpose. Two things. First, 
This shows that Jesus was truly Israel's king. Zechariah chapter 9, your king is coming to you. This is the official word because the king that God had in mind all along is now coming to Israel. And he's saying, Israel, here is your king. Now, centuries before, they came to the prophet Samuel and said, we want a king. Give us a king. And Samuel said, please, don't even think about it. Don't go there. God doesn't want you to have a king. It's the worst thing you can do. Don't even think about it. But God said to Samuel, let them have their king. You see, they wanted to have a king like other nations. And God says, let them have their king. And they got their king. Big mistake. God was their king. He had a king in mind for them. But they wanted to have their own way. Could I ask you a question? Would you really want to have what God doesn't want you to have? Would you want it? If he didn't want you to have it, would you still want it? You see, the worst thing you can do to say, well, this is what I want. I want to be like others. I want to be noticed. I want to get that prestigious invitation. I want significance. And I'm afraid I'm not getting it, Lord. And you insist on having your own way. Don't do it. Let this be a day where you come to terms with the way God has led you. And say, Lord, however you lead me, I want to do it your way. Well, in any case, Israel having a king was not God's idea. He was against it because God was their king. But at last, God's choice of a king for Israel is announced. The thing is, it's so unsensational. Imagine riding on a donkey. Is that, that the best they can do? And yet, this was it. So important was this that Jesus tells them to go to a particular place and you will just say the Lord has need of this donkey. Don't argue back or don't worry because the guy's not going to argue back. He'll just give it to you. You see, everything was just going according to plan. Well, Palm Sunday was the moment that God offered Israel their king. This is the one I had in mind. The day came a few days later when Pontius Pilate on Good Friday would say to the Jews, Behold, your king. Are you prepared to say, Well, well done, Pilate. I'm glad that you noticed it. You know, that wasn't it at all. In fact, when they put the inscription on the cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You think, well done, Pilate. Well, they came running to him and said, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say, he said he's the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And there are those who think, well, that's good, Pilate. But don't be fooled by that. Pilate was loving it. It was his way of laughing at them. Here is Jesus. He had just come from Herod and the chief priest where he's been hit in the 
face with fists and he spoke. He's bruised and he's humiliated and he's standing for the people and Pontius Pilate is just loving it. Here's your king. He really was their king, but it was unrecognizable. It's not what they had in mind. You see, that's the second thing. Israel rejected God's choice of a king. And by the way, this too was prophesied because in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet was given a glimpse of what it's going to be like. And I remember how one day as I was reading this chapter, which is probably the most important messianic passage in the Old Testament, I could just feel the burden of Isaiah when he said, oh dear, Israel will not like what God is going to send them. He starts out, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Somebody would not even notice him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You think, oh, Israel's not going to want a person like this. They're not going to want him at all. You see, their idea of Messiah was that he would be a king, yes, a military leader, a strategist, and somebody with great charisma. But there was such lackluster, uh, he had such a lackluster face that when Judas Iscariot betrayed him, he had to tell the priests, it's the one I kiss. They didn't even know which one was he. He just looked like all the others. There was nothing spectacular about his appearance. Not the kind of leader people might want. And so, Isaiah goes on to say he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. The sight of the cross was so ghastly, so terrible, they didn't want to have to look at it. Not the kind of person they wanted for a king. But this too is prophesied. And then, while they're praising him, only Jesus knew how it would end. And we are told he approached Jerusalem and saw the city and wept over it. He wept. Twice in the Bible it says Jesus wept. One, John eleven thirty five, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And now approaching Jerusalem. He knew how important Jerusalem was in ancient Israel. He knew that Jerusalem was the apple of God's eye. And he knew what was going to happen in the next few days. And he wept. He thought, if only you had known. This is your time of visitation. You don't see it. You don't see it. Because the day will come 
that your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, hem you in. They will dash you to the ground, the children within your walls. Jesus knew that they were going to reject him. And this is what would happen to Jerusalem. And he wept. I don't know to what extent Jesus might weep today. He's at the right hand of God. He has finished his day of suffering. But we do know that he's touched with a feeling of our infirmities. We know that. He's touched. And who's to say that he doesn't weep? One thing I know is that God knows your future. And there may be someone here, maybe, that if you go on the course you're on now, you get what you want. You're determined. You rolled up your sleeves. You say, I'm going to have my way. And God can see what is coming down the road. It just may be that Jesus is weeping with someone. You are about to make a horrible mistake. And could it be that God has brought you to this place as a loving caution to say, don't do it, don't do it. Well, they missed their day of visitation. Who has despised the day of small things? Raised the question by Zechariah early on in the same prophecy. And that's what Palm Sunday was. They missed their day of visitation. And so, it was the unfolding of God's prophecy. Second, the unfolding of God's purpose. And third, the unfolding of God's praise. For Palm Sunday was a day of praise. So, the crowds that gathered were made up partly of those who had come to see Lazarus. This is where a lot of the people could come from. You see, just a couple days or so before, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And people came from everywhere. They wanted to see Lazarus. And Bethany, where it happened, is just a mile or so on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you had a big crowd there already. And so the crowds that gathered were made up partly of those who had come to see Lazarus. We don't know how many of these were present at the crucifixion. Uh, a lot is made how the people that were praising Jesus on Good Friday were at the cross on Friday now saying he saved others. He can't save himself. There's no way to know if it was the same people. It could be that possibly none of them were at the cross to support Jesus. What we know is that those who saw Jesus, because of what they'd heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, they thought, this indeed is our king. And they started shouting, Hosanna, because the thing they wanted more than anything was to see Israel put back on the map and God overthrow Rome. They hated those Roman soldiers. They hated Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate knew that. That's why he laughed and said, here's your king. But now, they said, our Messiah has come at last. 
He's going to do what we've long waited for. A king like in the days of David and Solomon, he has come. And so they cried out, Hosanna. But the problem is, as I said already, their concept of salvation and what God had in mind were just not the same thing. And the interesting thing is, the whole time Jesus taught his disciples and told them again and again what the kingdom of God will be like, it was nothing like what they thought. But they would hear one thing, Jesus would say one thing, they took it as the way they wanted to, to take it. You may not realize that when he died on the cross, they still didn't know why he had come. When he was raised from the dead, they still didn't know why he had come. He didn't know why, they didn't know why he was raised from the dead, but they thought, oh, well, good. Now we know he will overthrow Rome. But then he would disappear. Over a period of 40 days, he would show up and then disappear. And the disciples are getting restless and they think, whatever is going on? And they just come to an agreement. The next time he shows up, we're going to go right for it. We're going to ask him. And they did. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. He showed up. What they didn't know is that this would be the last time they'd see him before he ascended to heaven. And so they looked at him and said, tell us, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus deftly avoided answering their question, just saying, well, it's not for you to know the times that God has set in his own authority. So he gave him this advice, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait, tarry, until you are clothed with power and you will receive power. They didn't know what that meant. But as they were told, don't leave Jerusalem, they spent the next several days praying. Ten days praying. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down, for the first time, for the first time, they knew why Jesus came. It wasn't to overthrow Rome. It was instead to be our Savior, to die on a cross where the blood of Jesus would cry out for justice to the Father. It hadn't crossed their minds that the law needed to be fulfilled. They hadn't thought of the fact that the Father punished Jesus for our sins. That didn't cross their minds. But when the Spirit came upon them, suddenly, all was clear to them, and they now knew the meaning of the word Hosanna, salvation. Well, the extraordinary thing is, even though their praise was motivated for a wrong reason, God affirmed their praise. In fact, Jesus said when the Pharisees rebuked the crowd and rebuked the disciples, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, if these keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Even though their praising God was for the wrong reason, Jesus affirmed the praise. And so that's the extraordinary thing. God sent his son into the world to die on a cross, though they didn't see that. And they were crowding Hosanna for their motives. God still affirmed 
their praise. Let me tell you something. When it comes to praising God, no way you can do it wrong. You can't get it wrong when you're going to praise God. God accepted their praise. And not only that, the children were getting in on it. What do kids know? What do children know? God accepted the praise of children. If you're in a situation and you don't know what to do now, try praising God. That will be the right thing to do. When you don't know what to do, start praising God. Well, there are four kinds of praise here. The first, salvation praise. When they cried out, Hosanna. The second, spontaneous praise. It was loud, noisy, unplanned. God loved it. By the way, does loud praise bother you? In the high watermarks of Israel's prehistory before Jesus came, do you know, they would sometimes praise God. You could hear them a mile away. And I think some today, if they hear people shouting, praising God, somebody wants to say, God's not deaf. <laughs> but he would reply, he's not nervous either. <laughs> the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky, where I'm from, in 1801, they said it was the sound of Niagara. You, as you can hear Niagara Falls a mile away, so they could hear the praises that were coming from this little area when 1,500 people were just doing nothing but shouting and praising God. He loves it. Don't let it bother you because you're going to be uneasy when you get to heaven. We're, we're told the praise is loud, not music, the praise of people. It's when we shout and praise Him. Salvation praise, spontaneous praise, that's when it comes easy. There's scriptural praise. That's what they were doing. It came right out of the Old Testament. They were quoting the Old Testament. And let me say this. If you don't know what to say when you want to spend some time praising God, turn to the Psalms. Just start reading them. And read how the psalmist praised the Lord. Read those Psalms. I remember one day when I became convicted at Westminster Chapel, we weren't thanking God as we should, weren't praising Him. I announced one afternoon at our Sunday evening prayer meeting, which took place an hour or so before the service, I said, for five minutes, there'll be no petition. I don't want you to ask God for anything. Just thank Him and praise Him. Try it for five minutes. Are you ready? Here we go. Quiet. I said, isn't anybody going to praise the Lord for something? <laughs> Quiet. I said, what's the matter with you people? Are you not thankful? Well, somebody thanking for Jesus. Oh, someone said, oh, yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Quiet. We'll thank him for salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved us. You died on the cross. That's good. Quiet. We'll thank him for the Holy Spirit. You know, it took weeks. The day came 
we had to extend the five minutes to 15 minutes because everybody wanted just to do nothing but praise the Lord, not asking for anything. The joy that comes when you just praise the Lord. And so, one reason you know praise is right is because the enemies of Jesus hated the praise. And remember this, the devil hates it when you praise the Lord. Want to find out how to please God? Find out what the devil would want you to do. Do the opposite. The devil hates praise. So, salvation praise, spontaneous praise, scriptural praise, and fourth, sacrificial praise. What is that? Hebrews 13, verse 15. He talks about the sacrifice of praise. What is that? That's when you praise God and you don't feel like it. In fact, you feel just the opposite. You're depressed. You're disappointed. You're in grief. Nothing has gone right. All your plans have come to nothing. You don't even feel good. I'll give you a little hint. There's an opportunity to please God in a way you never dreamed would make him happy. You see, spontaneous praise, he'll accept it, but that's when it's easy. When you get that good news and you say, praise the Lord, he likes that, but it's easy for you to do. Try doing it when it's not Palm Sunday. Try doing it when you feel the opposite. Never will forget that our verger at Westminster Chapel, Fred Jinks, came to me one day and said he just got back from Gordon Hospital. That's hospital in Vincent Square in London, not far from the chapel, where people with emotional problems, mental problems, uh, spent time. One of our members, her name was Yvette. She's now in heaven had, they now call it bipolar. They used to call it uh, manic depressive. And uh, she was in and out of Gordon Hospital. One day she was there and our verger, Fred Jinks, went to see her and said, how are you doing, Yvette? And she said, I'm just praising the Lord because Dr. Kendall told us that when we don't feel like it, we should praise him. And I've just been praising the Lord. I was so heartened when Fred Jinks told me that. And I picture this one day at the judgment seat of Christ when the rewards are given to the faithful Christian. You may expect the names of high-profile people to be called out first. I guarantee you, they'll be last. Imagine hearing the name Yvette. And someone says, he's calling for an Yvette. Anybody here named Yvette? She's a, well, that's my name. Well, he's calling for you. Go. Me? And Jesus will look at Yvette and say, Yvette, we saw you when you were in Gordon Hospital. 
and you were at your lowest ebb, and you didn't feel like it, but you were just praising the Lord. We saw you. Well done. You know, when we get to heaven, if I were to get a word like that, that would be worth all the suffering anyone could ever go through. I'm telling you, here's a word for Palm Sunday. You can't do it wrong when it comes to praising the Lord. Yes, scriptural praise. Yes, salvation praise. Thank him. Spontaneous praise. Why not? But if there's anyone here today, you're at your lowest ebb. My message is praise him. Praise him. Well, before I close, we now know what the word salvation means, don't we? The reason Jesus came into the world is to die on a cross so that when we die, we would go to heaven and not to hell. Did you know that that is just in a sentence the reason God sent his son? This is what Hosanna means, salvation. That when you die, you will go to heaven and not to hell. So I need to ask you a question. This may be your first time in this church and you've never had a question put like this to you. But do you know for sure if you were to die today, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? Could it be that God brought you here that this word might ring in your ears to know that you're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. God brought you here. I ask you, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. If you don't know for sure, pray this prayer. You don't need to say it out loud. God will see your heart. Are you ready? Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. Tell him. I want you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on a cross for my sins. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life.